Hello, welcome, and thanks for checking in today to No Vacancy, the podcast. I'm your host, Natalie Palmer. I'm an Airbnb ambassador and 17-time super host, and I've hosted over 1,000 reservations. I'm a stay-at-home mom of two under two and manage my eight listings remotely. My mission is to help new and experienced vacation rental hosts turn their listings into fully booked, profitable properties that can be managed from anywhere, so you too can have no vacancies. If that sounds good to you, let's get right into the show. Before we jump into today's episode, I have a very, very, very big announcement to make, and that is that tickets for Level Up Your Listing Summit are officially on sale. We have early bird pricing right now, so go, go, go get them. This is the lowest price they will ever be. Level Up Your Listing Summit, if you haven't heard, is the conference that I am hosting with Tatiana Taylor-Tate, and I will be having her on the show soon so we can dive into questions about the conference, our vision for it, what you can expect, why we put it together, all of the things you are dying to know and that we are dying to share. But for right now, I'll keep it brief. Level Up Your Listing Summit is a three-day short-term rental conference for women. The dates are February 27th, 28th, and March 1st in Scottsdale, Arizona, and please go check out the website if you haven't yet. It's so beautifully designed, and this is just the tip of the iceberg for what to expect with the rest of the event. That website is levelupyourlistingsummit.com, and thank you so much to everyone who has already purchased a ticket. We are so excited to meet you and see you in Scottsdale in February 2023. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of No Vacancy, the podcast. I'm your host, Natalie Palmer. Today, I am really excited to dive into a niche within this industry that I have not yet covered and don't know very much about, and that is midterm rentals. Since I am not the expert on this topic, I have brought on someone who is, and that is Ziana McIntyre. Ziana went from $50,000 in debt to financially free in just two years with Airbnb. She's been an Airbnb host since 2012, and after 10 years of managing short-term rentals, she has transitioned to selling real estate to investors looking to house hack or live for free. She's an avid real estate investor who owns a double-digit portfolio of short-term and medium-term rentals. This fall, she is releasing her book, 30 Day Stay, An Investor's Guide to Mastering the Medium-Term Rental, co-authored with Sarah Weaver. She teaches listeners how to achieve financial freedom through real estate on her podcast, Invest2Fi, co-hosted with Craig Kirlop. She has been featured on Bigger Pockets, Mr. Money Mustache, NPR Business Insider, and more than 50 podcasts. Ziana has been to 47 countries and spends half the year in Boulder, Colorado, the other half traveling the world as an international pet sitter. I am so excited to have her and get to hear from her about her new book and dive into this world of medium-term rentals. 
In preparation for this interview, I posted on Instagram asking if you guys had any questions for Ziana about midterm rentals, and you guys came in hot. There were so many questions, and you'll hear in this interview that Ziana even says there are questions she's never gotten before, so props to you guys for coming up with really creative things to ask her, and I hope you love this episode. For anyone who has been feeling a little bit burnt out on short-term rentals and just the constant churn of check-ins and checkouts, this could really be a good solution for you. And one thing I realized in our interview as well is that for a lot of markets that are right now coming in with 30-day minimums and a lot of regulation about how often you can rent and for how long you can rent, if those kind of regulations have been scaring you from entering a market, this episode may give you a different perspective that that could just be your edge. Maybe that market you were thinking about that has 30-day minimums isn't off-limits. You just have to come up with a different strategy and tackle it from a midterm perspective. So I hope you love this episode. I hope it helps if you've been feeling with burnout and gives you a new perspective on some new strategies to try. Without further ado, I give you our midterm rental expert, Ziana McIntyre. Okay, to start off, I just want to say that I learned this in the four-hour work week. I don't know if you've read that from Tim Ferriss, but in there, he talks about that an expert is just someone who knows a little bit more than the average person. Mm -hmm. And so that's one thing I just want people to, you know, take away from this episode is like, if you're feeling excited about a topic and you want to get on social media and teach people, it's like, it really is that you just know a little bit more. Don't feel like, you know, I'm the only person who ever did midterm stays. That's not true. You know, there's probably a lot of people doing it bigger and better, but I'm here and I did it first. Yes. <laughs> that makes me the best. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Right. You're here. You're the first so guest silly. I've ever had to talk about it. So you're the one who you showed up and yes, we are ready to learn. Yeah. So I've been in short-term rental since 2012. So it's been a long time. Um, but I actually made the switch over to medium-term stays because of COVID. For us, it was really from one day to the next. And I remember it distinctly being March 8th. But I had been on a podcast that day and I was like, you know, it's fine. I think it's all just overhyped. We're going to be fine. Yeah. And then like the very next day, it was just months of bookings just literally evaporated. Mm -hmm. They just fell off the calendar. Everybody was getting refunds. And I thought that this business I'd built over eight years was literally just going away. And so that's kind of panic inducing. Mm -hmm. And because I'm a real estate investor, I was like, okay, cool. Got to switch gears. This is not going to end me, right? I've got to be creative. So I immediately started noticing that new requests were coming in that were longer. So there were people that needed to quarantine and there were people that needed bigger places because now they're working from home and they're homeschooling. And then there were relief workers coming into town. So I was able to sort of switch and then realized I kind of like this medium term thing more as like easier and, and it works out in a lot of areas where there's a lot of regulations. So yeah, we can go into those different things, but I think it's a great, great way to do it. Well, that's really funny because I... I have kind of accidentally stumbled slightly into medium-term rentals recently. Um, I total manage nine units, and it's a combination of ownership and awesome. co-hosting. 
And in April, I think it was April, I had a random guest, random person reach out on Airbnb wanting to do a third party booking, which, you know, is a a big no, no, and we're not supposed to do it. But she was a rep for a leasing office. And there was an apartment complex in Big Bear where the entire first floor apparently flooded. There was a burst pipe. So they had to reallocate all of the people living on that first floor. And so she reached out and asked if they could house three tenants, um, you know, from displaced apartments across our units. They needed to immediately filter in those ones. So we had never done anything longer than two weeks, I think. But immediately we got them all in for like three weeks each. And after the three weeks, I insisted that she wanted to extend them. And I was like, we have to have a cleaning. Like, I'm sorry, you know, as long as my cleaner gets in there and verifies everything's okay, we're happy to extend. But I just was so nervous (laughs) about what to expect. Yeah. Um, So I've had two midterm stays totally on accident, was not planning to by any means. But it's really nice because I would have days where there was literally nine back-to-back check-ins and check-outs. And now just having even two off my plate, it's a lot more breathing room. So yeah, I, I can imagine yeah. when you convert your whole portfolio to this, how how much nicer it is. So so what does your portfolio look like right now? Are you doing all midterm exclusively or do you still have some short-term rental mixed in? Oh, I've got everything. Okay. So what you will learn as a podcast host is that it makes you kind of like an investor ADD. You're like, <laughs> oh my God, that's really cool. Oh, this one's really cool. I should try that. Um, so in consulting a lot of investors, I learn about new markets all the time. And so I've diversified my portfolio is what I, t- I try to tell myself. But I've got short, medium, long term, and I'm in four states. So okay. it's kind of like, diversified versus like in area and also in rental strategy. Okay. I think it's good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and and do you, you plan on keeping it that way or is there a certain market or a certain rental strategy that you are more drawn towards that you want to slowly convert everything to, or do you like the, the variety? I like the variety and you know, that's interesting. I don't feel like I've fallen in love with the market yet. And I think it's because the real estate, like, I don't know how I would explain this, but I guess just the cycles, they change so quickly and especially lately. And so it's kind of like one thing works and then it doesn't work anymore. And so that's the same for an area. You know, something gets too expensive or the rents haven't caught up yet. And so when you go to make your next purchase, you're like, oh, actually this doesn't quite work. It doesn't meet what I need, but I heard about this place over there and that's working great, right? So I think you just need to be able to be flexible. Yeah. Well, okay. So that goes back to midterm rentals then because you started as an STR host and then COVID hit and it sounds like you weren't even thinking I'm going to become the midterm expert in my area, but (laughs) people just needed longer term (laughs) accommodations and you figured you would adapt to it. So what issues did you run into early on with suddenly converting everything from an average, I don't know what you were getting, two, three night stays to now 30 day plus? Yeah, the the biggest worry for me was um, showings. For okay. some reason, I was like, oh my gosh, people are going to want to go see these apartments. And many of them are other states away. Like there's nothing I can do about that. And then how am I going to find people on the ground to do showings? 
But I quickly realized, actually, many of these people book sight unseen, just like they would on an Airbnb. And so that's great. And if you do need to have somebody, um, you can give them the code and then change the code right after. If you have any cameras, you can kind of see them come and go. There's a lot of ways that you can make that work if you have to. Can we really quickly just define our terms? Um, How do you define a, a midterm stay? Anything over 30 days furnished. Okay. 30 right? days so furnished. I've found that short-term rentals are often three to four nights, right? Okay. And a midterm stay is often three months because uh, travel nurses get 13-week assignments and then they can usually extend one term if they want. So you get this three to six-month thing. Um, and they're not our only tenants, but uh, they're very common. So so besides yeah. travel nurses, who else? I mean, that's typically the go-to, I think, when people think of a midterm stay. What other yeah. kind of clientele do you see booking for longer periods of time? So, I mean, just like you saw, it's insurance adjusters. So things happen in apartments or people need to do renovation in their place. We recently had some big fires where we live. And so a lot of people were displaced. Um, So you see a lot come through insurance. Uh, You see a lot of students. Mm -hmm. We get a lot of digital nomads. So they're the difference between like a business traveler and a digital nomad is a business traveler goes into a local office, right? They're traveling there so they can go to that regional place. And a digital nomad just works from home. And so they often want to have fast internet and maybe a monitor plug in too and stuff. So there are ways to kind of make it easier for those guests to stay with you. But there's lots of different tenants now. Yeah. You'd be surprised. So are you doing most of your marketing on Airbnb or do you have a direct booking site? Are you doing Furnished Finder? Where are you finding most of your tenants? Between just Airbnb and Furnished Finder, I think is enough. Okay. But if someone lives in maybe a more rural place or they're having a hard time in their slow season, you can reach out to insurance insurance adjusters or different placement agencies. So they have nurse placement agencies and stuff like that. And then there are tons of Facebook groups too, but I just never need to try that hard. There's a lot of demand. I mean, like I said, my, my two literally just completely fell in my lap. I want to ask you, what are your thoughts on third-party bookings for midterm stays? Because normally I know it's a big no-no. We're not supposed to do it. In this case, I have had that one leasing agent is the one whose name is on everything. And I just have the numbers of the two guests staying in the two units. But I feel like I trust the third party booking just because she's from a professional company. But how do you navigate something like this? Do you always insist if it's, you know, someone displaced, like in my situation, they have to be the booking themselves? No. So on Airbnb, I've seen those guys. Come through. Yeah. So it'll be different booking agencies or someone booking in the company. So maybe like the HR department or something like that for this particular worker. I've taken a lot of those. Okay. So actually I find it to be fine. I want to kind of run through what are some of the pros and cons of midterms. So let's start yeah. with, with the pros. Why should short-term rental hosts consider switching to midterm? First of all, it's easier. I think, I mean, you know, Pros and cons, we'll talk about leases because you don't normally have to have a lease, right? So short-term rentals, they just come in automatically. There's a lot more automation. So that might be the one con is that it seems like there's an extra step there. But automations are coming. Midterm rentals are just becoming a little more popular. And so as things 
get popular, then people make softwares to accommodate that, right? I like it because they can work in a lot more places. So regulations have really come in and you keep hearing about different markets where, okay, now they're banning short-term rentals there. And so I think for a lot of investors, they'll get kind of scared of saying, okay, I'm going to put all my eggs in this basket, but then my numbers don't work if, if it has to be long-term. And then for people that do long-terms normally, if you're buying a long-term rental now, the cash flow is not there in many, many markets because interest rates are high, prices are still high. And so this is a way to still get cash flow. Definitely. I, I see all those same pros already, even in just my tiny little bit of experience. Like I said, it's just for me, it's just been a lot of breathing room that there are two units. I do not have to, you know, refill coffee beans on like even these minor things mm-hmm. that they it takes your attention. It really does. And so uh, we're still cleaning the units every two weeks. We are insisting on doing these, you know, mid-stay cleans. But besides that, they're pretty self-sufficient and um, buying their own toilet paper and shampoo at this point. We only provided enough for the first month. I'd love to pick yeah. your brain a little bit, too, on how you handle the consumable supplies with midterm stays. So I'll tell you what we put in the book and then I'll tell you what I actually do. (laughs) So, I mean, what I think if you have a well-oiled machine or cleaners that are really organized, what I think you can get away with is making a starter pack, right? So you can have two rolls of toilet paper in each bathroom. You can have just a little bit of the basics. You can have like one dishwasher pod and one laundry soap pod, things like that, right? And not feel like you have to be continually providing. And we say it in our listings, like, hey, you know, we're getting you started, but then you're expected to buy buy supplies. And so we always get leftovers, which is awesome. And that keeps our costs really low. But for me, I'm just not as organized as that to be like, okay, we have this starter kit every time with my different cleaners in many different markets. We're just like, they got to clean, they got it set up. I'm happy with that. So yeah, I mean, if you're the type of person who wants to know their rate of return down to the penny, if you actually count out the different rolls of toilet paper, you can do that, right? (laughs) So it just depends on what's really important to you. Okay. I want to run through some of the cons with midterm stays. So any potential downsides, one that comes to mind is filling awkward gaps. If you're doing 30-day minimums, you know, how do you avoid that three-week gap in between people checking in and out? How do you get those stays to line up really nicely and fill the calendar just right? Yeah. So some people like in a market like yours, where you can legally do short term, they'll do hybrid. So they'll do short and medium term. And so if there's a gap, they'll fill it in with some short term or they'll just use the medium term for um, like their winter or whatever their slow time is. I guess your winter is actually a high time, but whatever their slow months are. Um, So that, that has worked out really well for them. So the way I do it with my places where it has to be 30 days as a minimum because it's the regulation of the town, I have it where it's not on instant book. So I know that's kind of like everybody wants to be on instant book because you show up higher in the search and all these things, but it's actually fine. So I only open my calendar five weeks in advance and I make people make a request. And then in the request, we talk. So I have learned that these longer term stay people usually are driving in. They can come a couple days early. They can come a couple days later. And so often I'm able to have them come in that same day or just a day after. So we limit vacancy a lot. 
I'm really surprised to learn that you open your calendar only five weeks in advance. I've always Mm -hmm. been under the impression that the closer you are to a check-in date, the more likely you are to get a short stay, like a last-minute weekend trip. And when people are planning anything longer, they need a few months out to plan. But you're doing okay with just opening. So when you open five weeks in advance, you might have someone checking in that week for the next four weeks. That's enough lead time you're finding? So if someone tells me, hey, I may extend, I keep the calendar blocked. If they tell me I'm for sure leaving March 3rd, then I will open five weeks after March 3rd. It may still be January because they're, so it gives me time, but I'm not letting them book because they're going to book a minimum of 30 days. I don't want them to be booking, you know with a five month gap or something weird. Okay. Okay. That's so what you're I mean. not, okay. Thank you for clarifying. So you're not opening like five <laughs> weeks from this moment, but whenever mm-hmm. the current tenant is leaving five weeks out from the, okay, perfect. Yeah. Um, okay. But that people are not sense. booking super far in advance. So okay. sometimes with short-term rentals, you'll see people make like a year in advance booking, which I think is mind boggling. I can't <laughs> plan my life that far in advance, but they're not doing that for these stays. Generally they're moving from one location location to another location. And so then they're kind of like, oh, I need to look for my next place. So it's not that planned out. I think, you know what, you're probably right. Because if all of this for you spurred out of COVID, we've seen how much travel has changed since then. And this digital nomad avatar is the kind of person who I think is a nomad. They're not trying to plan things six months in advance. They really, I think, spend 30 days in Palm Springs and decide they're tired of the desert and want to go to Big Bear next. They might be more last minute than we're giving them credit for. Okay, I'm happy to hear too that you keep the calendar blocked if they're planning to extend. That's what I've been doing with my (laughs) current two midterm stays. Yeah. Um, And it's funny because those are units I co-host for other owners. And they were texting me at first like, Natalie, why is the calendar blocked? Like, what's going on? I was like, calm down. I don't know what I'm doing yet. I've never done a midterm, but it's going to pay off. They're going to extend and you'll have 100% occupancy. A few other worst case scenarios I want to run through. And these were actually questions that I got from followers. So maybe we can kind of rapid fire through these. How do you handle tax code with this? In every market, is it a whole new ballgame you have to learn? Do they have different tax implications depending on the length of stays? That's interesting. So, I mean, are you talking about like a short-term rental tax, like a like a transient tax? Yes, yes. So we don't pay that. Okay. Once you're more than 30 days, you just don't have that anymore. Okay. So that's cool. And it's also seen as a long-term rental. We're kind of grouped in with the long-term rentals. And so you're not going to have the same permitting and licensing issues, it's a lot easier if you need one at all. Okay. Uh, What is the situation with squatters? Yeah, people love to bring up, I think it's just because we come up with these ideas of like, why can't we do this? Mm -hmm. You know, oh my gosh, evictions, oh my gosh, squatters. But I have not run into it. And I have a friend who manages like a hundred of them. And she said she only had to do one eviction ever. So what we've found is a lot of times our tenants already have another exit strategy, right? They're like, I have a job here. And then I have a job in this next town. Like I'm out of here. Or, you know, I'm, I'm here for a month and then I'm going to Austin next because I'm a digital nomad and I want to be like traveling around. So Yeah, I haven't really had this problem of people wanting to actually stay. Okay. 
Okay. I'd like them to stay. Yeah. I guess that's actually funny yeah. now that you say it. I feel like we're so worried about people staying, but probably once you start doing midterms regularly, it's like, shoot, they were a great tenant and now they're already leaving on to the next place. Like, stay longer. Totally. Um, yeah. Right. I mean, we have to have leases. So that's like the big con, I would say, is that you're a little more responsible, right? But I have been really lucky. I think just you want to be a little more strict about how you're, um, you know, checking the tenants. Okay. So yeah, I think that's an important piece. So that leads me perfectly to my next question. Let's talk Mm -hmm. about leases and rental agreements. Are you having people sign something in addition to just, you know, booking through Airbnb? Um, or, or how are you kind of processing this and do you do background checks on your guests? What, what do you put in your rental agreement? Can you walk us through that? Yeah. So if I book on a marketing platform, like an Airbnb or Verbo, I will just have it go through them and I won't do anything additional. You're in California. So sometimes people in California are extra scared of squatters because there's just, they're not like as landlord friendly in your yeah. state. It's more tenant friendly. And so if you're feeling uncomfortable, I'd say do a lease. You can still do one, right? If it's over 30 days. But basically I just let Airbnb take care of me in that realm. And then if it's gonna be through Furnish Finder, it's much more like you found somebody off Craigslist. You know, so you have to be a little more vigilant there. Okay. With Furnish Finder, if they're a medical professional, they're highly background checked. That's part of the job. So if they can give me any kind of proof of um, employment, which they usually have, that I won't go through again. I don't feel like I need to check that. But I do always call um, their you know, their previous landlord and just get like a, a little vote of approval. <laughs> Yeah. And how do, you, how do you get contacts for the previous landlord? You just ask directly, can I get a reference and they provide it to you? Or I've never used Furnish yeah. Finder. Do they have like a history on there? So Furnish Finder is a lead generation platform. Okay. So it just gives you a list of leads of people that are looking within, I think it's 20 miles of your place. Okay. And so from there, you're able to reach out to them. And it's not like I'm doing this every week. It's only when I have a vacancy. So it's like, oh, in three months, then I'm like, okay, I've got to do this right now. So we'll reach out to the people and then um, we'll have a conversation with them. So it's just like Airbnb where you'll do a little email exchange. And if you get any weird vibes, I imagine you know what this is like, then I just say, now let's move on to the next person. It's not worth it to us. But if they seem great, we'll pop on for like a five-minute call and just say, hey, do you have any questions? And we'll get their landlord's information in that call to do a little vetting. So then I'll do a quick call with them. But it's actually not... It's not a very lengthy process. It's still not as much of a commitment as the long-term rental, right? Like it really is that happy medium, I think, where you don't have to be, require first and last month's rent and do a full background check and everything, but you do want to be a little more diligent than your two-night guest for sure. Well, I think also with a long-term rental is like people are moving furniture in and out. So there's a lot more damage that can occur. Um, And so then you end up having a lot more vacancy because it's often that people are only moving in on the first or the 15th of the month. And then you might have to paint the walls. You might have to change the carpets out, right? So there's just things that with a furnished rental, we don't do. We don't have to do. That is such a good point. I've never even thought about it that way, but a huge differentiator between midterm and long-term is the fact that you're providing the furnishings. And 
just mm-hmm. knowing that there's going to be, you know, even if they move the furniture a little bit and slightly scuff the floors, like overall, you're not letting them wallpaper all this stuff and nail holes in the wall. And uh, just in providing the furniture, I think you're right that that gives you kind of a lot of insurance that it just is going to stay almost the same when you enter it. Maybe they'll just leave a big mess. Okay. Okay. That's a great point. What are you doing in terms of deposits? Do you require one? And if so, how much, how is that collected? And um, on what grounds would you keep the deposit? So I use Avail. So I don't know if you're familiar with Avail, but they do a bunch of different things. So even with their free version, you can get a lease. So whatever state you're in, it'll give you a sample lease. And then there's just like fill in the blanks. So it's really easy to fill out. Then it allows you to do electronic signatures. So you don't have to like be in person or anything. You could just send it to them. It also lets you collect deposits and rent automatically. So the rent just happens every month and you don't have to think about it. You're not looking for a PayPal or a Venmo. So it makes it really easy in that way. And they also do the background checks. So what I do for my deposit is I actually only collect $1,000. And the reason I do that is because my rents are fluctuating. Just like in short-term rental, I think that if you keep the same rent price all year, you're actually missing out because there is seasonality still in these furnished rentals. And so you're going to have high season where you could charge, you know, maybe one and a half times what you're charging in your low season. So you want to be able to change that rate. And if I have to change the deposit to match it every time, it's so annoying. Like I I don't remember what it is. Right. So I just make it the same for everybody. I'm like thousand dollars. That's good. I think if I start doing some luxury, uh, midterm stays and I'll make it more, but I have found that that's, it's not like I use the deposit very much. And from the deposit, I take their cleaning fee out of it when they move out. Okay. So usually the cleaning fee is anywhere between 150 and like 280, depending on the size of the unit. Um, and then we'll just take it out of their deposit and then send it back to them. Have you ever had to keep an entire deposit? Has there been like a nightmare checkout of a midterm stay yet or knock on wood? Not no. Yet? Good, good. Um, I have kept little bits. Usually it's around pets. So I'm really not accepting pets now because I just don't really want to deal with the extra cleaning and everything. So yeah, I... I don't really have good stories for you. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's good for you. Good for you. So, okay, pets, actually, that's a great question, too. I would think Mm -hmm. that with a midterm, you would basically have to allow pets. There's probably so many people that are not, if they have an animal, there's no way they would book a place for 30 days without their pet. So has the transition from not allowing pets been tough to find occupancy, or is there enough demand out there for people not traveling with pets? There's a lot of demand. It's surprising, but I think right now there's still just not enough units for the demand that's out there. And so for me, I feel like I can be a little more picky, Okay. but maybe down the line, or if there's like a slow patch, I, I would be open to it. It's just as a general rule, it's easier. It's nicer for our furniture. And then what kind of issues have you ran into with cancellations? Do you get last minute cancellations? And if you do, how is the process of, you know, finding someone to replace a 30 day booking on such short notice? Yeah, that's really interesting. Nobody's asked me that. I like that you have these new questions. Um, <laughs> these with are all Airbnb, to people on Instagram. I did not come up with oh, these last few. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. With Airbnb, if it's over 28 days, they don't give refunds. 
Oh, so that's surprising. Yeah, it's their own cancellation policy. So you, I mean, you can decide if you want to give them a partial refund or whatever, but that makes me feel really safe. It's like, oh, sweet. Like, I I feel great about that. So that doesn't Um, matter how far in advance they booked. If it's 28 days or longer, no refund when they cancel? No refund. Yeah. Okay. And maybe that will change because now Airbnb is trying to target so many more long-term stays. But as of now, that's their policy. Okay. Um, For people that, like, I have a couple places in St. Louis, for example. And St. Louis, you know, it can be kind of street to street. People are really concerned about safety when they're traveling alone as like a nurse. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of females. Um, So I've always said to them, hey, you know, if for any reason you don't like the place, I still need two weeks to to fill it. So if we want to change something up, like you either have to pay for those two weeks or you can use those two weeks to go find something, but I need two weeks notice. I can always fill it in two weeks. Okay. Okay. So that's smart. So this is something you would put in the rental agreement that you require that two weeks notice. Okay. Yeah. And I, I say that as well when they're leaving, because sometimes they, they do extend and I just say, Hey, like, it doesn't really matter if you're going to extend beyond these dates, just give me two weeks notice so I can start looking for someone. And you would refund if, or no, cause if they gave you two weeks notice, so let's say they had 30 days left of their, of their contract, they extended and they've got another 30 days with 30 days out. If they told you that was two weeks, you're fine with that. You would refund the remaining two weeks at the end of their stay. Yeah. So the way I'm collecting it is I get the deposit at the time that they sign uh, the lease, right? So that could be months ahead. It just depends on, you know, when they're looking. Then I tell them like, I want the rent three days before they check in. So then I've got time for the rent to hit my bank account. But when they come, if they're like, okay, I paid for a month, but actually I'm going to say two weeks, I'll refund the other two weeks. Okay. Just no questions asked. You assume you'll find someone and okay. Okay. Wow. So, so far it's just, it seems like it's a lot of worry for, for really no reason. Everything's been going very smoothly since March 9th, 2020. (laughs) I know it's been great. I I really like it. Um, I can't complain. Are there certain things that you insist on? Do you do mid-stay cleans? Do you like to get in there and have some excuse? The cleaner has to come and water the plants or something just to keep (laughs) eyeballs on the place? Or are you pretty trusting you've got the deposit, you've got the rental agreement, so besides that, you're good? I don't require it. It's a great idea, but I find that I want to be able to charge as much rent as possible, and I don't want to be paying for that, right? So if... I have to pay for a $150 clean. Even if I'm putting it on them, it means I can't charge $150 more that month, okay. right? So like I I don't do it. But what I do is I have automated messages. So I don't know if you're using like hospitable or something like that for your auto messaging. I have a series of seven messages that go out to the guests. They're all timed at different times. But I think it's about two days after they check in, I send them a message that's saying, hey, this is our cleaner's information just in case you want a clean. They're not included, but like, here you go. Um, And this is her rate. And a lot of people take us up on it. And it's great because it gives the cleaner more work because for them, we're taking away the short-term rentals. So they're not getting as many cleans. Um, Yeah. I want to ask you too a bit about the strategy of if you want one unit to serve as both a short-term rental and a midterm I know earlier you mentioned that maybe in your slow seasons, you can have it be a midterm rental and keep the STR for peak seasons. 
How do you kind of navigate that when you, you know, have this strategy of only opening like five weeks in advance? Um, what, what's sort of the timing when you want to use the same rental, but, but for mixed use? If you're doing mixed use, you can just open it as long as you want. So okay. what you could do is you could open it until the high season, right? So for us, our high season starts about March. And okay. so this whole slow season coming up, it's like you could have that whole thing open. And then if somebody books a long period in there, great. And then all the short periods. But if you're like, it's going to be really slow. And if we have those dates open, it's only going to be two weekends a month, then you're not going to make that much money, mm-hmm. right? So you can also say, hey, let's actually block that off and make sure that we get someone for Furnish Finder that is three months, right? So it all depends on how how well you know your market and your seasonality. Mm-hmm. I think that's kind of the important part. But I, I definitely don't want to deal with a lot of vacancy. Yeah. So- I know, you know, short-term rentals tend to get higher nightly rates. How are you determining the the price difference between an STR and a midterm rental? So with short-term rentals, people generally look at like AirDNA, right? So for a midterm, you can go on Furnish Finder. And so you're just kind of acting as if you're a client, right? So you type in the the um, city that you're going to be in. And then the map comes up and it's got all of the rates of what other people are charging. And because it's month to month, um, you can see it very plainly because on Airbnb, people can have different rates for every single night. It's just hard to tell. So it's actually really easy to comp it because you're right there, you're seeing all the numbers and then you can click through their photos and go, oh, this one is like, a sad basement. Like mine is way cuter than that, you know, like you can figure it out. Um, so it's, it's pretty easy to comp. And then I found that people generally overcharge. So I try to be really conservative with my numbers, but, um, one thing that I do is that every time someone checks out, I usually try to raise the price like a hundred bucks or something and just see like, Ooh, what can I get? Let's see. It only takes one person to say yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's so true with midterm stays you're only appealing to maybe 12 people a year. You know, you're, you have such fewer people you have to try and attract anyway, because you just don't have as many Mm -hmm. available nights. So yeah, you can take some risks, I think, and go a little higher than you think you'd be able to, or just, just see, see who says yes. That's such a good, such a good point. So how do you actually adjust the pricing? If you're doing mixed use, for example, and you're setting higher nightly rates because you're hoping to get a short-term rental, you're, kind of, is anybody going to book 30 days at that rate? Would you go in and do like the length of stay discount on Airbnb? Or how do you differentiate the prices when you're trying to do the mixed use? Yeah. So what I had been doing, like either way, even when it's a, it's only a medium term rental, I am using, uh, either beyond pricing or price labs, whichever one you use. So it's a pricing software. So I, I think those are really important to use. And the reason for that is because it will show you the seasonality if you don't know it already. Right. So I have a condo that's a one bedroom condo in Boulder where I live in Colorado. And that condo is normally 20, 2,500. But in June, we can get 3000 In July, we can get 4000 wow. And if I didn't have it on Airbnb, I wouldn't know that. And I think people on Furnish Finder just put one price and they do it all year. So you're missing out, right? So if you're having that pricing software, it will help you with the short-term price as well as the medium-term price. And then I do the stay discounts. I think I do about 20% for the month's day and then maybe a 5% on the week's day. 
Okay. So do you yeah. have any markets where you have to have a 30-day minimum and that's why you're doing this? Or are you just, if we can get a short-term rental, we'll do it. And, you know, the midterms are easier and that's we ho- what we hope to get. Yeah. So I do have like in Boulder and Denver, they have to be 30 days minimum. Okay. And so that's kind of made that transition work, but it, it sort of came around right around COVID as well. And so like all of the transitions happened at the same time. And then I have another one that it's not, there's not actually a law in place, but I know they don't love that you're doing short-term rental. So I try to do midterm for everything. And if I have like a random two days, I'll turn it on for short term. Okay. So a lot of investors would probably wouldn't touch a market that had a 30 day minimum. And Mm -hmm. I think what you're doing is great. You're taking away a lot of the fear from that and still making those safe places to go to just with the knowledge of what you can do with a midterm rental. So that's wonderful. You don't have as much competition because of that, right? Mm -hmm. So the regulations kind of keep people away, which is good. The last thing I want to ask you is what are your thoughts on is midterm rental dependent on markets? Is it right for every market or are there certain, you know, really popular STR markets are the Smokies, Pigeon Forge? Will midterm rental still work for that? Or are you finding this is really better for urban areas close to hospitals? You'll see that most urban areas have hospitals. So like that's easy, right? What I try to tell people is try to be close to two hospitals. If you can be within five miles, that's usually about a 20 minute commute. And that's kind of the most that a nurse is really wanting to do. But what I found in just kind of searching around for different clients of mine is that some markets, they're still a low price point, but they can charge a lot with that medium term strategy. And other markets, the price point is a little bit higher and maybe you're not able to charge that much. So you kind of see as you as you look around in these different markets that some of them work really well and then others, the numbers are just not there. So would you say it's easy, like if someone right now is struggling with short-term rental occupancy, is it typically pretty easy to just decide, okay, I'm going to switch it to a midterm rental and try this? Or do you find that if you really want to get into midterms, you need to kind of go back to square one and look at a market, start over and just pick a brand new market where it's better catered to that. Yeah. I think that if you're in a really rural place, it could be hard. It's not like it won't work, but it just might be few and far between. And so that's a challenge. So like a website, like Furnish Finder, it's mostly people that are in, um, in urban markets. And so it's, yeah, I, I think that that's going to work the easiest. So that's one of the things that I worry about with short-term rentals in places like the Smokies is that nobody really lives there, mm-hmm. right? So there's like thousands of vacation rentals, but if the the rents go down, which they have been, you know, as the recession's coming, things are changing. The trend is not as much to go to these places. It's not going away, but if you paid a really high price, you may not be getting the returns that you were hoping to get. And the problem is you don't have a backup plan. So people are generally not going there for months at a time. And the people that live there long-term, they work at like a restaurant or their cleaners. They're not going to be paying four or $5,000 a month for your mortgage, right? So you have to be a little bit careful. What I love about it in an urban market is it can be a backup plan. It can be a plan B. You know, you can use it to be creative. Okay. I, I've asked, I think so many questions. I feel like you gave us like 
actual, like, thank you for not just talking abstractly about it. I can't stand interviews like that. I love knowing like the nitty gritty of, you know, what you include and how far out you open your calendar and all those details. So thank you for diving into it. I'm really excited to get your book. When does it officially come out? So you can buy it now, but it will be shipped out. Um, I think it's November 8th. And okay. so it's through the Bigger Pockets bookstore. And if anybody is listening and wants a discount, yes. you can use my name, Ziana, for 10% off. Okay. And if you buy it while it's on presale, which is until that November date, there are a lot of extra bonus materials. So you get like a furnishing checklist and analyzer spreadsheet, a bunch of background interviews and stuff. So they kind of sweeten the pot there. Actually, now I want to ask you one more question. I know I said we'd wrap up, but I want to know what the process of writing a book was. What inspired you to realize, I have enough knowledge about midterm rentals. I can write this book. Were you approached by by Bigger Pockets and a publishing company, or did you come to them with this idea? How was that all born? I was on the Bigger Pockets podcast in 2017 around short-term rentals. And back then, they were just starting their publishing, and they approached me about doing a short-term rental book. And I didn't do it. There was just kind of something that kind of fell through the cracks and it didn't work out. And then a couple of years later, Avery Carl, who was very big in the Smokies market, she did their short-term rental book. And when that came out, I was kicking myself going, oh my God, that should have been mine. But at that point, I was feeling really burnt out on short-term rentals and saying like, I don't know if I feel passionate enough to write that book. And then the medium term strategy came up for me. And so actually last year at Bigger Pockets Conference, which was uh, exactly a year ago, practically this month. Um, I was at the conference and I was like, I want to write a book. What do they not have already? Cause it sort of feels like they've got every strategy in the book. You know, there's only so many. Yeah. Um, and I, it dawned on me, I was like, Oh my gosh, I wonder if anybody would be interested in this medium term thing. And so I pitched it to them right there at the conference and they were, they were interested. That's amazing. Yeah. What a cool story too about, you know, kind of kicking (laughs) yourself about missing that first opportunity, but clearly it it worked out for a reason. I mean, when I posted today before our interview that I'm talking to you about midterm stays, I, my DMs blew up. People had so many questions about this strategy. I think people have been feeling the STR burnout and you are definitely coming in with a solution that you don't, you don't have to give up and sell your place and convert to a long-term rental. There's that happy medium that exists. So I am really yeah. glad that you didn't write the STR book and <laughs> that there Thank was a you. plan for you to come in with, with this topic. I think it's so needed yeah. right now. Um, yeah. Well, get 30 days stay. I will get it. Ta-da! Yes. Um, I will definitely get it. And I will include the 10% off discount code, which is your name in the show notes below. And I can't wait for people to get their hands on it come November. It's going to be a very helpful guide, I think, for the answer to a lot of people who have been feeling the STR burnout. So yes, can't wait. Thank you. And if anybody has questions, they can blow up my DMs. Um, I'm at Sianna McIntyre on Instagram. And I also have a podcast too called Invest2Fi. So if they want to check that out, uh, we're about house hacking. So it's a great podcast. All of that will be linked below. So everyone, please go connect with her and um, yeah, spam her with your your questions. Because I know we only (laughs) scratched the tip of the iceberg. There's uh, how many pages are in the book? 
Ah, I have it right here. Let's see, 235. Okay, so we maybe covered what, like 15 pages worth? There is a lot more (laughs) nuggets, I'm sure, in that book. So yeah, Yeah. if you guys have more questions, this was just the tip of the iceberg. Get the book and go reach out to Ziona and find out more. Thank you. All right, thank you. And finally, for this week's Am I the Airbnb Hole?, We're going to be reading a post that a Airbnb host shared in a Facebook group about their listing that they manage remotely. The listing is located in Bali. So here we go. I have a vacation property, which I rent out while I'm not there. Last night at 2 a.m., my guest contacted me saying there is a leak on the roof and some of the plaster has been damaged and water is coming in. It's a tropical location and was pouring all day. It was 11 p.m. at my location and I stayed up until 2 a.m. to wait for my contacts to wake up at 7 a.m. their time near the property. The guest had contacted Airbnb as well and Airbnb had contacted me at 3.07 a.m. asking how long do I think it would take to fix this. But I was sleeping and the second message was at 8.48 a.m. saying that since I have not responded, they are refunding the guest 20% for the impacted nights and full refund for the remainder of the days. There's no actual hole in the roof. The water was dripping in from the bathroom ledge and collecting over the plasterboard, which in turn got damaged. It looks worse on photos than it actually is. The issue only affected one bedroom out of four and one bathroom out of three. Also, the affected bedroom was in a separate building and the main house is not affected at all. My co-host told the guest it will be fixed in two days and that they can stay in the main house, but Airbnb already told the guest that they will find a new place for them. The repairman came at 12.30 p.m. to assess the damages and confirmed he will replace the plasterboard tomorrow and will paint the next day. This is a 28-night reservation, and the guests have been with us eight nights, and I'm losing a lot for this issue without being given a chance to fix it. I have been a host for nine years, and out of my 25 reviews, the last 24 have been five stars. I don't agree with Airbnb refunding this reservation since they still have 20 nights with me. I would be okay to refund slash adjust the nights which were affected. The house sleeps 10, and there were only four guests, so we easily could rearrange the sleeping for three nights. The main building is completely separate and unaffected. The nightly rate was normally $259, but since the guests booked for 28 nights, they got $100 per night. But now they only stayed for eight nights, so they should not qualify for the monthly discount. What do you guys think is the best move? Thanks. So, okay, I'm going to be, I'm going to kind of take the easy way out here and actually say, I don't think that there are any Airbnb holes in this situation. I think that this is just a really shitty situation with a lot of different perspectives to balance. And let's let's go with each person's point of view. From the guest point of view, and this host did attach a picture of what the damage looks like, and it looks bad. There is a whole piece of drywall completely collapsing down onto the lower level from upstairs. And he does say in the caption that, you know, the damage actually wasn't as bad as it looked in the photos. But that doesn't really make a difference, right? To the guest who sees this and at 2 a.m. sees a tropical storm outside and now water gushing in and drywall collapsing, it does not look good. And I know that the host even says in the caption like, oh, turns out it has nothing to do with the storm. There was some water collecting from the bathroom and that's what spilled over. But how is the guest supposed to figure 
that that's the case. And so from the guest perspective, I completely see wanting to find new accommodations, being freaked out, thinking that this looks really bad and could affect a lot more things. And, you know, if it flooded while they weren't there, would their stuff be ruined and and what's happening? So I totally get the guest perspective. Now, from the host's perspective, I feel for the host here because they say that, you know, they got the messages at 11 p.m. and stayed up until 2 a.m. their time so that they could contact some trades and plumbers, got a hold of some people, and then went to bed. And then at 3 a.m., Airbnb reaches out to them and they didn't respond for over five hours. So Airbnb went ahead and issued a refund to the guests and said they would move their location somewhere else. I feel so bad for the host here because that just sucks that they did try to do what they could, you know, and then because they slept through the next messages for Airbnb, they thought that they handled it and they had trades on the job. They missed those messages and this is what happened. So it sucks for them too. And I even get the host saying like, you know, hey, there's this main part of the house and a separate part of the house and we technically can sleep 10, but this was only a group of four. So we have a lot of options of where we could move people. So I get all of that. And then I also get Airbnb's point of view. They are getting called up by these guests. They are trying to contact the host to see what's going on, not hearing anything from the host, but they're probably getting these pictures from the guests that look terrifying And what is Airbnb supposed to do? Just sit on their hands for over five hours and say like, sorry, guest, you know, we we have to wait for the host to respond. I would love Airbnb to be able to hear both sides, but there's certain cases where when the damage looks really bad and there's a tropical storm outside and it was raining cats and dogs for 11 hours, you know, Airbnb has a right to assume that there is a hole in the roof and that's what the leak is from and that this is not going to be something quickly resolved. When the guests are calling them panicked and it's 2, 3, 4, 5, 6 a.m. and they're not getting answers, of course Airbnb is going to want to help them out. And so I, I completely get Airbnb's point of view and I, I don't think they did anything wrong here either. So I think that this is just really comes down to miscommunication. And unfortunately, that does mean that this is the host's fault because when, when it's an issue of miscommunication and different opinions... The host should have answered that call, should have answered that message from Airbnb. And because they didn't and they let it go for over five hours, this is what happened. You can argue all day that it's not fair and Airbnb should have waited longer to listen and hear the host's side. I think that seeing the pictures of the damages, it's very clear to me that the guest had a right to be scared and Airbnb had a right to step in and determine what was fair. And, you know, just some technicalities here. I know that this host is saying, you know, the group was only four people, even though we can sleep 10, so we could have moved them around. To me, I I don't like that solution. They booked, there must be a reason that they booked a place for 10 people, even if it's only four. Maybe they were going to have some friends and family fly in for the remainder of their stay, and now they don't have rooms for everybody. He says in here, oh, you know, we were going to be down one bedroom and one bathroom while this was getting fixed, so whatever, it doesn't matter. They already weren't using one bedroom and one bathroom. You don't know that. Maybe they booked a bigger place because they planned on having another couple or, you know, their parents joined them for the last bit of the trip. So if people booked it, they they should be able to expect the entire place. And if it's not in working order, that's an issue. I, again, I really do feel bad because I can tell that this guy's a good host. He even posted the link to his listing. The listing is so beautiful and the reviews are 
amazing across the board. And I think that this guy is trying so hard. And this is one difficulty with hosting in a different time zone is, you know, the the different times of day you have to account for. At the end of the day, though, you have to have that phone on loud every single night. And it's rare you're going to get hit with situations like this. But when they happen, you have to be on top of it. It sucks. I know it would mean a sleepless night for this host, but that's what you have to do. And I'm not going to call the host an Airbnb hole here. I, you know, even though I, I agree with the decision Airbnb made, I feel for the host on this one. I really do. I think that this is just a lesson to everybody that, you know, if you don't have a co-host in place or someone to manage your messages, you cannot get lazy about this. This is a job that doesn't require you to work all the time. I manage my listings in, you know, a few minutes a day and that's it. Mostly everything's on autopilot, but you have to be ready to drop what you're doing and and handle this situation when these emergencies happen. And unfortunately, the host just, you know, he dropped the ball at the wrong time and this was the consequence of that. So I feel so bad for him. This should be a good reminder to any of you listening. Here's what I would have done differently in this case. I'm not saying I'm a perfect host. I I've been there. I've made mistakes like this guy has, okay? But this is what I think we can learn from this. What I think would have made all the difference here is in that time period between 11 a.m., 11 p.m. when he was notified about this to 2 a.m. when he was waiting for it to be morning in Bali time. During that period where he was waiting, I, if I were him, would have called Airbnb and brought this to their attention before the guests had a chance to call Airbnb and just explained, hey, I don't know what's going on yet. I just want you to know I'm on top of it. The guests just notified me of this. They've sent me photos and, you know, I'm happy to give them some compensation for tonight. I don't know how much yet, um, but first thing in the morning that time, I'm just waiting to contact a contractor or a plumber and I just want to let you know I'm on top of it. I think that that would have made such a big difference you know, if, if Airbnb had received that message, then maybe 3 a.m. comes around and they send that follow-up to him like, hey, we, we got questions from the guest. I think they would have been a lot more willing to wait for a response and know that there's a time difference and there's stuff going on. But hey, at least the host reached out to us and told us he's on top of it. So, you know, and, and if he could have explained because to Airbnb, to whoever that customer service rep is, they don't they might not understand what he's telling us about the difference between the guest house and the main house and how one house wasn't affected at all. Airbnb might not understand that, but if he could take the time to explain that, I think he would have had a lot better luck. So that to me is the big lesson from this story. If you ever find yourself in a situation like this, maybe not even this dramatic, but the guest is sending you some sort of repair or something that might be an issue, I would let them know that you're working on it, and also quickly make a call to Airbnb to tell them that you're on top of it. Because if the guest gets to Airbnb before you do, and then Airbnb has to chase you down, that is not a good look. So that is the one big lesson I would take from this. Overall, though, I would say there are no Airbnb holes here. I just I think it was a lot of different perspectives to manage. This guy's listing is so beautiful, and I have no doubt that he will rebook the remaining 20 nights of the reservation. Block it for a few days to get these repairs done, but he will rebook after that. He did an outstanding job with this listing. It is so beautiful. And with that, it is now checkout time. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you back here next week. 
Lastly, as Airbnb hosts, we all can appreciate a good five-star review. So you already know a great review on this podcast would mean so much to me. Please subscribe, review, share, and connect with me in the show notes below. Bye.